0: Hey, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1 tonight, um, but I just I want to begin, um, maybe take a little bit more extended than usual time of prayer uh, for our community and all that we're kind of facing in the world right now, uh, and, and so I'm going to ask you to join me. Let's just, let's just take a couple minutes and pray together, all right? Father God... We, uh, boy, we live in strange times. I think uh, if you would have sat any of us down at the beginning of this year, we might have outlined so many plans and intentions, so many things we thought we would see and wanted to see, so many things we wanted to do, and uh, and yet, uh, turbulently at times, those things have changed in dramatic ways, and, and it seems like that continues to be the case, and I, and I pray that that's a good reminder for us. I, I pray that it would be reassuring as we, as we think about it more tonight when we get ready to study your scriptures that uh, we would just continue to rest in, in how little control we have, and yet how comforting it is to know that you have it all. In your hands, that, that you hold all things together. I pray that we would continue to come back to that in the, the moments that we feel faint and times of our weakness that we wouldn't underestimate Jesus, that we would trust you in all things. And, and so I pray for uh, our community, think about uh, our school districts that are dealing with Uh, just the the chaos of illness and decisions and uh, all of the turbulence that comes with that. I pray for our teachers who are uh, dealing with the the need to go from from live to virtual to live to virtual and everything in between and all of the things that that entails that uh, you would give them a great deal of peace and a great deal of patience for parents who are uh, working with kids and and trying to understand what their schedule might look like and what is best for them what's best as parents and and just pray that you would work things out for the sake of your glory in that pray for all of those who are. Uh, in governing authorities from small levels to large that you would be uh, guiding decisions, giving them a great deal of wisdom and discernment as they look to do what is best ultimately for the people under their care and responsibility. And, And Lord, I pray for your church. I pray that, like you say in Philippians, that we would shine like stars in a time like this. That we would be salt and light in a world that needs that so desperately that that we wouldn't find ourselves wrestling with the same foolishness as all of the rest of the world that we wouldn't be resting in the anxiety and fears of the world and we wouldn't be sucked into the belligerence and foolishness of the world that that we would find ourselves entirely different walking gospel-centric lives Desiring to live that out and be a proclamation of you and you alone to a lost and dying world. And I know that I'm not good enough to do that in my strength and my power. Not even even close. Sometimes I'm not even trying. And so I pray that your spirit would move in my life and move in our lives collectively. That we would be a people guided not by our sinful flesh, but by the Holy Spirit within us, that you would move us in a way that is consistently walking us worthy of the gospel, that we would be sanctified in truth, that you would move us in that direction, and that we would trust you and follow you in every day, in every battle, in every aspect of our life. Help us, Lord. So we pray as we study your word tonight that uh, you would bring all of those real, today, relevant things into our context and, and ground them in the scriptures that it might help us and renew us as we go out into this, this weekend and into next week and, and think about it as a, a place where we can be your hands and your, your feet and be the body of Christ. Help us with it, Lord. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, if you have a Bible, go with me to Habakkuk chapter one. We're gonna take the second half of Habakkuk 1, and then we're going to extend into Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, We'll probably spend one more week in Habakkuk next week, um, but want to take this as a sort of microcosm or an example of the way that God interacts with us as human beings. And so uh, we're going to kind of look at the text and, and really trying to draw out some principles and some attributes of God as well as some principles and attributes of man and some things that you see. And I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this is 2,600 or so years ago when Habakkuk's writing, the principles, both the attributes of God and the attributes of man that are identified and described here, tend to be about the same. A whole lot of things change in all of that time and yet the way that man responds and the way that God responds are incredibly consistent throughout the history of time. And so uh, in this, I want to show you kind of the eternal nature of God as well as the patience of God uh, in his workings and the kind of games that we tend to play when we're not real happy with what God's doing in our lives. And so uh, if you remember, here's what happened last week. We sort of laid out this background uh, pretty holistically where Habakkuk finds himself. Uh, someone afterwards told me, the person that I actually trust and ask a lot of questions to, my wife, um, so don't throw her under the bus, but she said, hey, that was a lot of history, really fast. And so uh, today, I came up with visuals. So I got a map, Ellie's gonna throw that up here, and I'm gonna show you kind of, kind of where we are, really quick recap where we are historically historically in the book of Habakkuk. So, if you know a little bit about the Middle East, mostly I had my laser pointer that I bought on the internet, and so I wanted to use that, so I figured a map would be cool, because then I could use my... uh, Anyways, Uh, if you know a little bit about the Middle East, here is what it looks like today, or about today. Uh, Here, right off of the Mediterranean Sea, is God's people. That's Israel. Uh, And then... You go backwards 2,600 years where Habakkuk exists, the northern half of Israel up here has been overthrown. It came in 722, we looked at it, by the Assyrian Empire that is this green. And this yellow area here, modern-day Syria and Turkey, is kind of where the Assyrian Empire rested. And at Habakkuk's time, are still holding fast as a deteriorating empire. Now, if you remember from previous weeks, that we saw that Nahum tells us Assyria is not going to get Judah. Now, even though Judah puts himself in a pretty precarious situation, they're not going to have to worry about Assyria, according to Nahum. However... In between Assyria and Egypt, two of the world's superpowers, lies Judah, Oh, by the way, what we said last week is what is present-day Iraq and parts of Saudi Arabia and Jordan is where this new empire, the Babylonians, has started to arise. So if you just kind of look at that map and picture where the Mediterranean Sea is and where the three largest empires in the world at that time exist, you see that Judah is fairly insignificant and incredibly important strategically. You see that? I, some of you maybe understand more about like military strategy than others, but ultimately, if you have a land that is on the coast that separates all three empires, that land provides quite a bit of value. And so Judah finds itself in a place of, um, kind, of kind of difficulty and fear and yet, one of the things that's happened recently in their history coming into Habakkuk's time is that Josiah, the boy king of Judah, had brought about sweeping reforms and decided that it did not matter what the present situation looked like externally. What mattered was that his people were meant to be people that were worshiping the Lord. And so he brings about reforms in the temple. They begin to see all of this amazing stuff happen. And as they do... Uh, things are beginning to kind of look up in Israel. And and so the the land of Judah is, is starting to kind of get things together, and as that's happening, Egypt decides that they want to march their armies through Judah. Now, it doesn't tell us why, but look at, I mean, the other two superpowers of the world are north and west of them, and so they're kind of heading that way. Josiah says no, and in his bravery and trust in the Lord, decides, I'm going to get out there like the foot soldiers around me and I'm going to fight. He does so and he dies. Now here's here's what's incredible and this is when Habakkuk begins to write. He dies and almost immediately he is supplanted by one of his sons who only lasts on the throne for three months and is then replaced by another one of his sons which is a puppet king from Egypt who has put him in place. Both of them instantly unravel the reforms that Josiah has made and begin to do evil in the sight of the Lord and things get ugly in a hurry and Habakkuk writes trying to figure out why his people who were just looking like they had turned a corner and starting to follow the Lord again have now rebelled against him and what we looked at last week was God in his grace and his mercy actually answers Habakkuk doesn't owe Habakkuk an answer but gives him one and says oh I'm doing something in your days in fact the line that we uh, maybe recognize from a verse that is well known in Christian lore, right, is you would not believe it if you were told. And then he goes on to say, "I'm, I'm raising up this new empire, these Chaldeans, the empire of Babylon, and they are a Impetuous and fierce people, and they swiftly come in and take over land that's not theirs. Their justice ends with themselves, and I'm going to use them to reap destruction on you to exact justice where you see none. And that's a wildly unsettling thing for Habakkuk. Seem reasonable? It should. It should, uh, because if we cry out to God and go, God, what are you doing? Why won't you let this injustice end? And He goes, Yeah, I'm going to kill everybody. I mean, that the first gut check reaction is, Oh boy, right? Like maybe I prayed wrong. In fact, that's what Habakkuk is going to do in just a second. We'll look at it. But in this, we said last week that one of the things that we see demonstrated is God's control or God's sovereignty in a situation often supersedes our comprehension of that situation. In fact, uh, frequently what you see in Scripture is God doing things that are going to take place hundreds of years down the road with intentions down to the most minute details. A few weeks ago when we were in the book of Micah, we looked at it and noted that in Micah 5, he's going to prophesy that Bethlehem, will be the birthplace of the Messiah, of the Savior, even though that's in the context of Bethlehem being destroyed by Assyria. Hey, uh, the Assyrians are coming in. They're going to desolate and wipe out this area. And in about 700 years from this town will come the Savior of the world. And God's, God's looking so far down the road that the people simply can't even comprehend it. And so we said, that's a, that's a good thing that we would trust in one who has control over the universe beyond what we have control of. And yet, when we get here, you find that God begins this discourse with that you ought to look at the nations, observe, be astonished, and wonder because I'm doing something in your days. And then he says, you would not believe it if you were told. Now, here's what I want you to see tonight. That comes true almost instantly in Habakkuk's response. So we looked at Habakkuk's frustration, God's response. Habakkuk now is going to answer God. Pick up with me in verse 12 of chapter 1. Habakkuk says this. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One. We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look on favor on those who deal treacherously? Here's here's what Habakkuk says, two things. God... You're everlasting, you are eternal, you are yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, you know what's happening tomorrow, and we will not die. Right? This is this is the game that Christians play. I mean, maybe almost one of the most common, and not just Christians. I think people in their conception of God do this all the time. God knows everything, God is ultimately sovereign, God is in control, and he couldn't possibly do this because it would not make him good, merciful, just, and righteous. Amen? We, we, on one hand, go, well, if, if God is so big, and if God is so in control, how could he possibly let this happen? That's exactly what Habakkuk has just implied. God, you're from everlasting you're eternal we will not die you can you can't be telling me the truth because because this per, this people that you're raising up they're evil people you couldn't possibly use evil and treacherous people to accomplish what you say you're going to accomplish In your eternal sovereign will. You couldn't be one who is eternal and knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Not only knows, but is in tomorrow. It's not a place for you. You're there. And yet, i got to know this one better than you, God. This is over and over and over and over again how people lose faith in God. Right? When, when something in their life changes in such a way, shifts in such a way that they can't understand what could possibly be the good in what comes next. And cancer happens or a natural disaster happens or some type of heinous act that rocks your world to a level that you look and go, how, how could God allow such a thing? And Habakkuk, kind of juggling this same thing and wrestling with this same thing, has to remind himself first, God, you're from everlasting. You are eternal. right? I think, I think there's some value in this. We fast forward, think about the, like I said, we look at some attributes of God. Fast forward 2,600 years and think about how Connected and pertinent this is today, that the God of the universe, the God we serve, is eternal. It means he has no beginning. It means he has no end. It means he's not confounded and stopped and limited by time and scope. Both of the things that we're completely limited by. Think about that. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're limited in time. You don't even know if you will be here tomorrow. Amen? Not only that, we're limited in scope. You don't don't know what is happening in children's worship right now. They could have tied up Katie and held her hostage and are waiting for enough candy to let her out. We wouldn't know, right? She wouldn't scream, okay? So in that, you don't know what's in the next room, let alone downtown or out of the county, the state, or the other side of the world. God is there, doesn't know what's going on there he is there the same way he is here that he is eternal ever present and from the beginning until the end alpha and omega think about think about it in this context when we think about all that is going on in the world with the the unrest politically and socially and in, uh, kind of covid world that you and i are meant to be a people who can rest and trust That we don't need to know all of the answers because he does. Because he's from everlasting. Because tomorrow isn't something that he's going to get to. It's already there. In fact, uh, this is how Jesus says it. This, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking through, in the section, if you have a Bible, Matthew 6 is, picks up in verse 25, and it'll go to the end of the chapter. Uh, in my Bible, the subheading of this section, I went to it today uh, to, to copy and paste it, and I went, oh, look at that. The subheading is actually the cure for anxiety. This is how Jesus says it. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat or drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies in the field. They don't toil or spin, yet I say that not even Solomon in all his glory is clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself each day, has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is going, you, you stay in the present and you let your heavenly Father, who is from everlasting, handle the future and redeem your past. And so Habakkuk, knowing this is true, then, then kind of plays one of these spiritual games that we really love to play in our limited nature. You go, oh God, you are eternal, but... How could you possibly do this? You can't do this, God. These people are evil, right? I I think about, think about parenting, right? Because this is this kind of what this looks like in a very small picture of it, right? Is that we as a parent? I'm I'm a father of three now single-digit kids, and more and more, though they're kind of growing in intelligence, and at time, they'll, they'll sort of outsmart me. I hate that now. Uh, it's just, and I know it's coming more and more, and it, it just kind of enrages me a little bit, um, but 95% of the time, like, I just, I know the games they're playing, And they just don't have a leg up on me. And yet one of the things that frequently happens is I'm going to tell them something that is good for them. And they're going to war against me over it. Right? You been a parent before? Parent now? Right? I mean, I've had arguments with my kids about why they can't eat an entire pie. I mean, come on. Right? I've had arguments with my wife about why I can't. Eat an entire pie, but that's a different type of argument, right? But, but in this, right, the, something that I tell them for their good is something that they think I'm a horrible father for at times. Right, and they're going to grow out of that and past that, and hopefully some point in time uh, when they're not like dying because they're they've eaten all sweets and that's the only thing they've eaten for their whole life, they might thank me and go, man, I'm glad that you kind of like watched out for my diet, right? Like I've had arguments with my kids about why they couldn't play in the street, right? Like legitimate argument i had with josiah obviously uh but in that right want to play in the street right that's where the ball bounces and so let me go out there and how could i possibly do this i must be evil right when clara was young i had an argument with her because i would not give her a spanking she did not know what the term meant apparently but was begging that i would give some to her right like if, I, if ever I'm just going to give in and have some mercy, okay, I'll do what you want me to do, right? Like It's, it's in that, uh, over and over and over again, right? I, my kids have this tendency to do this where, where they're arguing something that they understand so little, they see such a small picture of, and yet they're clearly certain that I don't have their best interest in mind. Isn't that not the way that we treat God? This is exactly what Habakkuk is doing. I know that you are so much smarter than me. I know that you are from everlasting. But have you seen the people you're talking about? They're treacherous people. You, can't, you must have made a mistake. You can't possibly be talking about these people. And completely ignores the fact that if we're talking about an everlasting God, we see such a brief and limited view of time and scope and space, and we have no idea what he's doing. And not only that, but Habakkuk, you're not the centerpiece of the puzzle. And so in this, you ought to trust him. In fact... Not only does he do this, right, like a good and everlasting and merciful and just God couldn't possibly use these evil people. God, how could you How could you do that? Certainly, I must understand better than you. Here's, here's what he does next, which I think is one of the second most common, perhaps, uh, things that people do in arguing how God can't possibly have his best interests and his purpose and his glory in mind when natural disaster or uh, Evil or problems exist on this earth. Look how he continues on. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? He says, he says this. God, this is his argument. God, you can't possibly do this because the Chaldeans, they're, they're less righteous than we are, right? We're not righteous. Remember that? That was in the first four verses. Uh, hey, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. Wicked surround the righteous. Justice comes out perverted. That's who he's talking about, my people. Now, he says, uh, you're going to send them to kill my people? Those people are worse than me, right? We always want to do this. Here's, here's how we have the tendency in our culture to define righteousness, we look horizontally and find the worst person we can find, know, or interact with and go, well, at least I'm not him. At least I'm not her. Amen? Is, in fact... Oftentimes, we're benchmarking our lives by, are you good enough, based on the fact that you got a cousin who's serving jail time, or your friend over here has their life completely in a disastrous wreck. You go, at least I'm not that one. How frequently do we do that? In fact, you go and you find someone who doesn't know the Lord. Whose chances are, according to statistics in the U.S., four out of five of them are going to say that they believe in heaven. They believe in a God who's going to send them to heaven when they die because, here's the answer. What is it? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Because because I know a worse person than me. It's the same argument Habakkuk uses. Now, what's really fascinating about this argument is think about what the Chaldeans don't have. They don't have the temple. They don't have the Pentateuch. They don't have the Torah. Right? They don't. They don't have the Word of God. They don't have all of the prophets. These. These are God's people who are living unrighteous lives, despite the fact that they know the Lord, and he's told them what they ought to do, and yet these ignorant people, he's going, no, 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 they must be worse than I, and in this, makes the same argument over and over and over again, that I think we see throughout the history of the humanity, that Ultimately, our righteousness can't rest on the perfection and the standard that is godly, but, but it must rest on the fact that there's some people that are worse than us, right? And it goes back, again, right to, right to what it looks like to be a child in the arms of your parents, right? Like how frequently, if you have more than one kid, you know this, right? How frequently are you going to be argued with about whether or not something is fair because the other one got fill in the blank, right? All the time. All the time, all the time, because because ultimately what our sinful heart finds us wanting is equity and justice when we feel like we're slighted and grace and mercy when we're the ones offending. Amen? That's that's exactly how we operate. It's no different with Habakkuk as he's wrestling through this. In fact, he goes on, and I want to read this to you and just let you think about this a little bit because it's going to make sense next week as we talk about it, but he's going to describe what's happening with the Chaldeans. Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things, without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring up all of them with a hook and drag away with their nets. And they gather them together in their fishing nets. They're coming after all mankind, all of these pagan people. They're taking them over, and therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer sacrifice, now listen to this, to their net. And they burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continue slaying nations without sparing? He goes, Because are they, are they going to be a people who continue to worship themselves and continue to worship their idols and continue to worship the power in their own hands taking about all of the things of this world? God, again... How could you, an everlasting and eternal God, let this happen? He even concludes it this way. Uh, look at how he begins chapter 2. I'll stand on my guard post, and I'll station myself on the rampant, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, and how I may reply when I'm reproved. He goes, I'm going to go stand out there and wait for the Lord to answer me, because, because certainly it couldn't be this way. Now, in the pride of man, look at how God answers. And I think he shows us a couple things. It says, then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. And I, I like this part. Inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Can I can I help you in, in layman's term? What he says? Hey, write it down in stone. It's happening. And those who read it better get ready. Because I'm not I'm not relenting from this, right? Like I love that idea. Put it, don't write it on paper. Don't use a pencil, right? You're doing the crossword with a pen. Write it in stone, and the one who reads it may run. For the vision is not for, the, for the vision is yet for the appointed time, but it hastens toward the goal and it will not fail, though it tarries wait for it for it will certainly come and it will not delay god's coming back at habakkuk going listen you you see so small you your view of this picture isn't like mine i promise you this is coming now second he he notes a couple things verse 4 behold as for the proud one his soul is not right Within him. But the righteous will live by faith. This verse kind of is a springboard for the rest of chapter two. And so uh, I'm going to challenge you this week to spend some time reading all of chapter two and kind of looking at the ways that God is going to go on to talk about what he'll next do with the nation of Babylon. But in this, he's going to build a thesis out of ultimately what our response to the Lord ought to be, recognizing him being everlasting, recognizing him being sovereign, recognizing him being in control in our life. And so he says this, you can be one of two things. You can be proud and your soul is not right within you. This is not only the place that Babylon finds themselves in, but it's also the place of Judah. That they have walked in their pride and he warns against such things. In fact, the end of chapter 2 concludes his warning this way. Think about this in the way that we understand pride. What profit is the idol when his maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside of it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth be silent before him. Here's, here's what pride ultimately amounts to in our life. It amounts to idolatry. You see, he recognized it in Babylon that they would make and fashion their own idols. This is what uh, Habakkuk was inferring when he talks about their nets casting in people and them worshiping said nets, that they were seeing themselves as all powerful and mighty. The most common form of idolatry, I'm convinced, in our culture, 2,600 years later, is self oriented idolatry. That ultimately we're the Lord of our own life, that ultimately we are the ones who determine how we're going to be, what's going to happen, and where we're going to go forth. And in it, God says, that kind of pride is going to result in your demise. That if you continue to be one who lives thinking that ultimately this world, this universe, this universe revolves around self, it will end in you recognizing me sitting on my throne. That your pride will lead to a soul that is not right within you. And yet, here's, here's again and again and again and again what you see in the scripture. That pride is not, is not the flip side of that insecurity, but rather humble faith. Look at it. But the righteous will live by his faith. That ultimately... You and I, Habakkuk included, are meant to be a people who would stop trusting in ourselves and would place our faith in God. And not only this, but this is reached back from years and years earlier. This verse itself is recognized all the way back in Genesis 15. If you remember the covenant, God chooses a man named Abram. says, I'm going to make from you a great nation. It's the nation that Habakkuk lives in in this time. And it says, Abraham believed God in his faith. Faith was credited to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness, that Abraham is made right before God by his faith. Habakkuk is told that his righteousness would be found by his faith. It goes forward. In fact, the gospel itself is going to be focused on this very message. From Romans chapter one, Paul says it this way, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. He repeats the same thing in uh, Galatians chapter 3. For as many are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Here's what God presents Habakkuk with. And by extension, us, from page after page after page written in the scripture, it comes back to this. You have a choice. You you are either one who in your pride lives with yourself on the throne believing that you know better than God. Or you you live in such a way that you argue that, that ultimately you you must be okay because you're more righteous than them and yet you either succumb to the pride of man or faith in God. That God in His love for you and I sent His Son to live the life that we couldn't, to fulfill all of the words that the prophets speak to, to bring to conclusion and culmination the truth that we were in need of a Savior. And He does so, killing Him on a cross. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. He becomes the curse for you and I, so that In Him, we wouldn't have a righteousness of our own in our pride so that we would not boast, but rather a righteousness that comes from Him received by faith. That we would be a people who would humble ourselves and believe, trust on Him instead of ourselves. That we would be a people who can give away Anything else that this world has to offer, that we would be a people who would not find our worth in anything outside of Jesus Christ and faith in him. So here's here's what we do. I want to pray. I'll sing a last song. i think about how appropriate the words of this song are. I want you to I want you to think about this as we sing. What, is it, what does it look like to be a person living by faith? And, and here's the refrain of this song over and over again. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Lord, Lord, I, I want you, I want my faith to be solely in you. Help it to grow. Help it to be constantly as a part of being sanctified more and more, trusting in you. Knowing that you're everlasting, God. That you are eternal. That whether or not someone else is more or less righteous, it's a moot point. Because no one stands righteous before you. Only in Christ are we made Righteous. Our pride leads to damnation, and yet to be made righteous is to live by faith. So take all this world. I don't don't want it. Give me Jesus. Let us be a people who cling to you. Help us, Lord. Pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.